It's Monday, May 20th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 208 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is bass player, composer, Nick McMaster. This is him playing with Kralis. Let's have a listen. Nick has been an essential part of the underground technical metal scene here in New York City for the last several years, and today's conversation is a good one. Today on the show, Nick McMaster. First things first, please, right now, if in the background you hear a lot of ambient noise, that's because we finally have some really beautiful weather, and I've got all the windows in the apartment open. When New York comes to life in the springtime, it is a very specific uh, combination of sounds. Reggaeton, um, reggaeton, and, uh, and also reggaeton. But it is a lot of fun. I live right by here by the river, and it's nice to open up the windows and hear everyone out there having a good time on the, on the greenway. If you guys follow me, for those of you that follow me on Instagram... You will have seen some pictures uh, that I posted last weekend of me and, you know, as, as many of you know, my all-time favorite musician and one of the people I care the most about, me and Evan Parker. It finally happened. We finally did a podcast. Uh, and that's coming up next week. I cannot tell you how excited I am for you guys to hear this. While we're on that subject, follow me on Instagram. I put up a lot of good shit. My handle is Simmerman1. C-Y-M-E-R-M-A-N and the letter one. Check it out. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, please do one of two or both things. Rate, review, and subscribe to it in iTunes and become a patron via the show's Patreon. The way that you do that is you go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast and you, at any different level, you know, five bucks is good, become a monthly donor, and it really helps to keep the show going with a sense of vibrancy and strength. So do that. All right, Nick McMaster. Nick is another one. This has happened a lot um, over the years. I have people on that it's weird that we never really talked before. Considering the number of, of mutual friends and interests uh, and just moments that we've been in the same place at the same time, it's, it's, it's long overdue that Nick and I finally got to know each other a little bit, and I'm really happy with today's conversation. Nick works primarily, and actually these days, exclusively with two bands, Kralis, which he's been in for the better part of the last 10 years or so. Kralis is Colin Marston, who was on the show back in 2013. Mick Barr, who was also on the show back in 2013. And drummer Lev Weinstein. Black metal music taken beyond to the point of extreme, extreme creativity and just uniqueness. People, uh, you might remember the interview I did with Kelly Moran from a year or two ago, and and she she talked a lot about Kralis as being this this music that completely transcends its genre, and I would have to agree with that. 
The other band that Nick is active with is also with uh, a member of Kralis, Lev Weinstein, the drummer. That's called Gurion. That's a two-piece. Bass, drums, and Nick also doing vocals. Gurion, though different from Kralis, just like Kralis, is incredibly complex. Uh, For me, very emotional, very heavy music. We talk about it a bit on the show today, but... I, I should probably put in the work to, to get better at describing this. I have a real emotional response to a lot of heavy music. And and there's certainly, Kralis has a new EP out called Wolf, new-ish, within the last year. And it's totally different from from the music that they've done in the past. And from what I can understand, uh, Nick, it's it's he predominantly drove this, this particular release. Um, I don't know what it is. The, the first time I put it on, I was walking around in the East Village listening to it, and I kind of got choked up. It re- the first track in particular reminds me of this album by Esoteric called The Maniacal Veil, which I've spent hours and hours listening to, and I, I don't know what it is. I, my, my chest kind of tightens up, and I feel really vulnerable. It's it's a wonderful feeling. It's the thing that I look for in, in all music. Um but Kralis and Gurion is just incredibly unique music. And, and as you'll hear in today's conversation, Nick, just like all the other cats in that band, and like a lot of guys in this scene that I'm talking about, whether it's Kevin Huffnagel, uh, Charlie Looker, Greg Fox, Toby Driver, Mario Diaz de Leon, uh, just you know, a, a long list of people making intense, thoughtful, extreme statements. Um, Nick is just a really thoughtful and, and interesting person to talk to. And today's a good one. You know, for those of you that come to the show by by way of, you know, improvised music and maybe the more jazz-based side of things, you're in for a good one today. You're, you're, this is, you know, you'll hear from someone who is very serious about music and is able to talk about it in really, really relatable and informative ways. I'm looking at the internet. I don't see a dedicated webpage for either Nick or Kralis. But if you want to find out more about this particular musical universe, I suggest you go to kralis.bandcamp.com. Kralis.bandcamp.com. There's over 10 releases, and they are all well worth your time. Today's a good one, and I'm happy to share it with you. All right, that's it. Here is my conversation with Nick McMaster. he's fucking awesome obviously <laughs> you know that's that's that that's at least that impetus of it um, well, you know, it's funny i was thinking about this before you got over here because i was thinking how like if people if someone uh, were to just say like brooklyn metal or ridgewood metal mm-hmm. i'm talking about right now <laughs> i mean Ridgewood's a little too specific right but if but you were it, talking about brooklyn metal like uh-huh. the the image that that would conjure in people's minds is like for a lot of people would be one of two things. It would be like extremely technical, like kind of avant-garde, you know, metal, mm-hmm. that, like a lot of the stuff that we know. But Brooklyn metal historically has been like biohazard right. and like fucking anthrax and like what could be described as like regressive metal. <laughs> but the fact that like you and Hunter and Charlie and Greg Fox and all these dudes are from New York City actually 
is an interesting concept. I wanted to say, well, yeah, I wanted to say, by the way, that I, so I saw Ben Greenberg and Lev do a fairly elaborate production of Tommy. I mean, they were just part of it at school, but okay. Lev, um, sorry, I'm so bad at classic rock. Yeah, Lev was Keith Moon and, <laughs> wait, who's the guitarist, Ben? Um, yeah, uh, Roger. Uh, Townsend. That, uh, Pete wait, Townsend. Pete Townsend. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, they were, like, rock. they were the core of the Who. Um, How'd they do? They did fucking awesome. It was great. And there's this guy, Alex Cohen, of your across He's a little younger, but he's drums with he... a lot of people. He's really good friends with Kenny Grahowski. They kind of are like drum right. buddies. Right. And he does a ton of like videos online of like yep. rudiments and shit. He, but uh, he was like a seventh grader watching while this was happening. And he's, he has said, I mean, I don't know if he wants us to get around, but, but it's not embarrassing in my opinion. But right. He has set, told Lev, perhaps in confidence, that that... Seeing that performance like made him want to play. Drums. See, dude, that's, that is fucking cool because like it it proves to me that it's not just like coincidence or happenstance that these things happen. Like like Fort Worth, Texas, for instance. Have you ever been there? Uh, no. I mean, it's not been to very little Texas. It's not like a cultural mecca. But if you look at the he's, the the. It's all from like a ten-year period. The list of jazz musicians that came out of there—all guys born like between 1920 and 1930. It's insane. Mm. As musicians that came out of there, all guys born like between 1920 and 1930. It's insane. Mm. It's in, it's you know it's Ornette Coleman, Jimmy Jufri, John Carter, Bobby, like all these people. Clearly, they were influencing each other. Right. Yeah. You know. And the way, and so they just happened to be from there, or the, or there was some reason. Well, I mean, that they were all that the, guys would go. No, no, no. I mean, UNT is there now, which does have a jazz department, mm -hmm. but that's after the fact. Gotcha. It was just because there were clubs. To These play guys were and, born and raised yeah. in Fort Worth, Texas. I was gonna say about the other kind of Brooklyn metal that you slugged. Um, yeah, well, maybe a little, but uh, I, I, I just think that that you know, New York's a big place. It has a lot of neighbors, and that's just to me a, a a different Brooklyn, which I've actually come into contact a teeny bit because um, I know this woman for a long time. She's a personal trainer, and for a long time we were like, I was, I used to teach bass lessons, like all your huh? bass lessons. So I was teaching her, and she, we, she was like, trading me personal training, because which was great, because she was a lot more expensive than I was. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, hour for hour, it was. Uh, he and his brother are both like fitness uh, guru, like calisthenic, you know, like guys doing human flags and Tompkins Square yeah. Park and stuff. But they're also like these sort of just like. Brooklyn, like Midwood, Coney Island personalities, like they like judge like mustache competitions. With That's Coney Island. Awesome. But uh, the guy grew up with Josh Silver, who was the keyboardist of Typo Negative, right? Um, and uh, sometimes I have these like, um, uh, you know, they'll have like barbecues and stuff. I'll go down to Midwood, you know, because actually I have a backyard and shit. And there's a lot of guys around there who are like, oh yeah, so and so does like session guitar for Life of Agony when they have a, a tour, yeah. <laughs> like that's you know so. That yeah, it's like that. I think that's that's just the thing is that metal at that point, you know, and you could write all sorts of papers about this, but metal in like the '80s and into the '90s was not coming from the Upper West Side, really. No, 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 you know, no, no, no. That's that's a weird later, you know. That's like you know my generation, but well, um, and I mean, there's you know, you know, I always think about you know, it was it was prep school kids in in Norway too, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I, mean, well, so there was, um, I got this buddy. Maybe you know, you know, Vincent. Sorry, who? Vin Sin. Vinny Sin. He, that sounds really familiar, he's, but that's also just one of those names. It's an awesome name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he's, he's like a down-home Brooklyn boy from... Matty Pasta, that's the other guy. <laughs> Your cheers, life, by the way. The of <laughs> to Matty Pasta. To Matty Pasta. <laughs> oh, that's tasty. Uh, Vin, 
He's like down home, like Bensonhurst or Bay Ridge, right, like right. you know, like deep Brooklyn. He owns a recording studio um, out there, and the name's fucking escaping me. Uh, but he, uh, it's called the Electric Plant. Gotcha. He engineered all those typo records, like that, which to me have biohazard a very biohazard. Yeah. Like those have a very specific sound. Or that actually, you know, who I didn't check it out um, until meeting these people, but Life of Agony. Their records from that era are, are kind of in that typo camp of being. They sound sh- cool. Yeah, strange. Yeah, yeah, oddball. And if you, I mean, and when you uh, hang out with Vinny music. at his studio, it's like it's not, you know, it's not this like macked out, you know, crazy studio. But he knows his room so deeply. That's a great record. Fuck, you're right. That is 20 years ago. All my IDM, because that's a, like most of my CDs kind of come from then. So there's a lot of I like, just IDM got, got rid of like 500 CDs. <laughs> but that was the first time I ever heard quote unquote dance music that like made me think that it could be cool. Gotcha. That was when you caught them. But you know, I just saw Aphex Twin that, that he had that show yeah. like a month ago. How was it? It was fucking awesome. I got us like. It was like, uh, first of all, it was in a giant warehouse that I'd never been to. Just one of those, like a place off like Flushing. Uh-huh. Um, Flushing Ave, not Flushing the Neighborhood. Ave, right. But, but pretty close to me. I walked, actually. And uh, Not Knockdown. Not Knockdown. Okay. But just another, just imagine Knockdown right. 2.0. Right, know? got it. Like, less, of, less built to be a venue. More mm-hmm. just a, but yeah. Yeah, and then the, the thing was, it was just packed, and it you know, very much felt like a, a rave. You know, I always associate Aphex Twin, in addition to the whole IDM thing, with it sort of like harder rave culture you know yeah like the more more drugged out less like deliberate less smart and i felt like he, it kind of paired that because it was like it was like a crazy Aphex twin super medley like there definitely would be recognizable bits uh-huh. of song. like i would like oh yeah i know that song but it would never be the whole thing it would just kind of come in and out of this big thing of noise yeah um and then by the end it like it probably was still stuff that had been released as one of his aliases or something but it was just like to my ears, it was just like really hard. Like it had the jungle beat. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Frame, you know. I mean, you, that was to me also just a great example of the power of context because I th- I think of that jungle beat as like so played out, and when uh-huh. I hear like you know a, a metal record or something from that time that would like dabbled, you know, and put it in there, I'm just like, oh guys, what are you doing? But like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so dated. Yeah. But uh, but he made it. He made it sound vital in that context. It sounded vital and well, pretty, it's funny. Pretty, I, I like, was listening you know, to so. Afe- There was like a very brief period of time for me where I was just like listening, you know, Square Pusher and Aphex Twin and fucking Kid Six Hundred Six. Just right. that, listening to that shit constantly. And like with those guys specifically, it was the first time I ever heard. Again, I'll use quote unquote dance music, but electronic beat oriented music that sounded. Like their their computer was breaking, yeah, like the way right. like a guitar overdrive makes an amp sound, you know, where you're like, oh fuck, like mm-hmm. this, it sounds like it's kind of coming apart, and that was what like, like brought me in immediately. Yeah, that's funny. I I, I had a similar um. That reminds me of a similar realization I had that I think about a lot retrospectively, which is just like coming the other way from electronic music to like metal music and um, feeling like uh, it was it was more an angel. But really, uh-huh. almost any death metal band would would suffice. Um, that like, even though they had the standard like Beatles four piece rock lineup, they were like making shit that sounded like Mersbo or whatever, you know, right. breaking yeah, yeah, yeah. contemporary <laughs> con- conventional Sonics. Uh, that was kind of the hook, you know, because I, I had some weird like anti rock thing when I was a kid. That was your feeling yeah, towards rock. Yeah, just no, just all, the sort of like... indulgence and spandex and anything that reeked of like hair metal and like that right. kind I mean, of thing. Sense. I was just yeah. like, no, fuck that. But what did you listen to? Is um, that uh, I, well, I, I mean, 
when I was younger, younger, I still did listen to grunge, but of course that was kind of the point of grunge was to like not have that. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, but that was like literally, that was like literally with my parents as a kid. Cause they were like trying to stay cool and get kept up with all that. I mean, to their credit, yeah, you know, yeah, it was great. You do a lot worse than that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like the first like self-directed music, um, was actually some rap and then right. like electronic music. Cause that stuff was just so around, you know, yeah. in New York. And if stuff. you're walking around um, New York city, yeah, you yeah. hear Wu- a lot of music. Wu-Tang and yeah. East coast, West coast. That was all just like, all those records were coming out. You know, there were songs are on the radio, biggie songs, that, uh-huh. you know, but, um, but yeah, then the first band I like, no problem. The first band was Skinny Puppy. <laughs> really? Yeah, that was like That's my first band that I uh, <laughs> wanted to just like. Um, that I got into like kind of on my own initiative and like got all their, you know, would get like their concert bootlegs on eBay and yeah. just like all. <laughs> I, mean, I got into Skinny Puppy like when I was like fourteen because it was like one of the scariest things I could find. I was pretty much going for that too. You know, that was my mentality. Like, what what are the extreme? What are the bounds? Like, I've already, you know, kind of jumped in. Now I'm just looking for I, like stuff that sounds good, but also just stuff that's just testing the limits. And so from Skinny Puppy, I went, you know, quickly found it the other like side of industrial of um, sort of the post throbbing gristle. Like uh-huh. it, it was all around this World Serpent label in the '90s, although it's not that way anymore. But you know, yeah, Genesis like, lives like. A block yeah, from here. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Co- Coil and Current ninety three, yeah. Death in June, Nurse of Wound, um, all those bit explored all that shit again. You know, trying to find the limits and. I mean, all those bands you just said, like in addition to like the music being cool and being intense and everything else, like like that that those are that's like a real world. Like when you put those records on, you're not just listening to guys play. You're listening to like a full on. Yeah, no, it it felt like a bit more than just tunes yeah you know and uh yeah that that definitely attracted me and, it, and i guess that was some that was kind of what I, what you're saying like that was my issue maybe with rock is just like it just seemed so you know just dudes with guitars or whatever yeah you know what i mean i mean did you um, watch this um this new movie on netflix the dirt the the motley crew i didn't but i've had an, i've had like many bandmates read the book and summarize it back to me like uh-huh. a couple times so i felt like good on that right um, yeah but I mean, also maybe yes a little resistant to, this, to that subject matter <laughs> i mean it's I, cool i mean it's cool it's, it's cool. but that's what it you know it's yeah, these yeah, fucking yeah. like dumb dudes who can't i mean honestly i listened back to motley crew after watching it they're, they're not a good band <laughs> i mean yeah no, um, it's funny because I feel like this has been a a, a journey for me as f- from the you know the the uh, course I kind of was telling you about, and then obviously finding metal and getting super into metal more th- also through playing it and yeah. and like the mechanics of it, um, appreciating just like rock based instrumentation period, um, and then you know circling around and getting into classic bands and you know there was a point when I re- I was like 21 I realized I was like kind of a poser because I didn't know like Black Sabbath and Metallica and stuff well so <laughs> Merciful Fade and so I just I, checked out all the shit and I was like great I by and large lo- actually like this it's not just like history I think you know? for a so. lot of us like we're constantly <laughs> catch I, I was had I conversation with Charlie Looker like a week ago mm-hmm. where I'm like dude have you fucked around with Duke Ellington <laughs> right yeah and we're straight up both like geeking out on Duke right now but that's like a huge blind spot for yeah, me yeah yeah sure no I mean I don't know specifically Duke Ellen your records but um but yeah then you know going through uh, a bunch of other stuff and coming to join Kralis and stuff um just in terms of kind of like closing the circle uh one of the funny things I came around to because of Mick was liking at least like the first Motley Crue record maybe the first two uh-huh. And Which are like, kind of like fucked up and... and the first Wasp yeah well they just I mean they just are they're just driving kind of proto- you know you point we were so 
sort of actively thinking about black metal tropes and stuff in like the early years. And so I was surprised to learn that Tommy Lee plays basically the, the, the bur- what I thought of as the Burzum beat, you know, that, really? uh, yeah, do good, do good, do good, I mean, it's in lots of early hair metal and stuff like that, but yeah. it becomes like a, it becomes a really solid, like primary mode of black metal kind of with different associations, but the beat is there. And the funny thing is if you go, you can go further back to another high school obsession of buying, um, Krautrock uh-huh. and they had what they called like the motoric beat, which is kind of just the Burzum beat without double kick. Right, like, you know, like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's the same beat, it just has more kick drum. It's but, so uh, funny, man. Metal, uh, <laughs> like, like I am. So I had to respect my liquor. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I respect their like musically them off the. Ba- I respect them off the bandstand more than I do on the bandstand. Actually, <laughs> I'd rather hang out with them back in the day than go to one of their shows. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that does certainly. Well, I don't want to talk about the way I actually found out about, you know, who Tommy Lee was. Uh, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> as, a, as a kid. A little too young for the band, but... <laughs> well, here's the thing, man. I will, I will cop to the fact that I am basically a poser in every scene that I'm in. Like, I'm not authentically any... Of all right, the musicians right, right. I run with, like, I'm... I'm... I'm sensing some, like, Socrates in that, you know. You know that you don't know. Yeah, totally. You but know like, that you're not the... And I've been listening, like, for metal, like, for instance. <laughs> I've been listening to that shit since I was, like, 11. But I get so nervous talking about it with people that know metal because I feel like more than any music, there's such, like, hyper-micro-definitions of every... Of these... All these different strains. To me, it's all metal. Mm-hmm. I will listen to Grief... And then we'll listen to, you know, fucking, you know, Motorhead, and then I'll listen to Kralis, and I, obviously I hear the differences, but yeah. I don't spend a lot of time, like, taking apart, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's um, you know, Funeral Doom. That's not, you know. It's a bit of, like, a, a hybrid thing to begin with, mm-hmm. um, in that it has, like, it it's had sort of regular injections from, from a sort of punk-type um, aesthetic of... Uh, you know, back to basics, just, you know, pure, whatever, pure bare bones, metal essentials, you know, that kind of thing. And then it has the Baroque classical thing also mm-hmm. coming in at various points, you know, Iron Maiden, Ingve Malmsteen, mm-hmm. you know, people like that. And it exists kind of as this walking. People will de-emphasize one side or emphasize another, you know, and that and that can mean that, you know, you can have a bunch of people like attending a metal concert, you know, and if on the one hand, it's like a really, you know, um, like technical, hyper precise, like I don't know if you've ever in Rings of Saturn, uh-huh. something like that, you know, that really has very little like rock and roll of any proper, you know, re, you know, exactly. spirit right, definition right. of it. Tracing and then, it and, and the then a different, and then your different like metal show is, you know, some like Japanese D beat type, yeah, you know, crust thing or whatever like that. Which I mean, people might say that's punk, but you know what I'm saying. Like you can get to, you can get to have audiences that actually have totally different like expectations for what they want for the music. Do yeah. they want like a totally visceral hit or do they want sort of pseudo classical, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or, um, or throw, throw like sun in there and there's a, yeah, but I don't think, uh, a uh, textural experience. I saw sun play like a week or two ago at St. Vitus. Yeah. Right. I, and was it good? It was fucking great. <laughs> it was fucking great. Cool. It was the weirdest crowd I've been around in a long time. I will say, <laughs> I will, I mean, it was like really, I was thinking for some reason it popped in my head that it would be like the most polite crowd of it was a very polite crowd. It was like I mean I don't say this I don't mean this in like a pejorative like shitty way but like I got the feeling I was around a lot of like severely autistic people. Hmm. It was a lot of really like that's funny young. I would actually expect more savvy 
savvy people. But but who? Do you know the term incel? Yeah, I do. Like I felt like I was around a bunch of, like incels. Wow, wow. No, I was actually thinking of like a it's like hipsters. A and more shit. like with it. Yeah, an audience. I mean, yeah, kind of like when you go see Purient, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah they, they they were there too. <laughs> but I, I I would venture to guess that the majority of like diehard Sun fans, it's never entered their mind to ask, can these guys really play? Right. You know what I mean? As where like if you go to see like you know Ingve or something, it's all about like musicianship and taking apart mm-hmm. what he does and and embracing that side of it. And dragons, maybe. And dragons. <laughs> It's the worst. Actually, maybe Son and Ingve share that. So was the bass the first instrument? Uh piano, actually. I my like parents kid shit. Yeah, the normal piano thing. Yeah. Um although I did it for six years, um, which I as I've gathered is a little longer than usual because I, I just didn't realize I could quit. It was like some weird Did you hate it? I I, lo- I didn't like it as yeah. much as I wish I did now. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, It'd be pretty fresh to be able the to really, like... <laughs> The really good thing about it was that it was Manus, and they uh, forced you to take a theory program. You couldn't just take piano, uh-huh. and that's the part that has been uh, important, as I see it, um, because I just had a facility for like you know hearing just the two dimensions that music lives on as like a a heard thing sure experience in time in a room and then having that and and breaking it down to a page that these symbols are going to mean something and it can be reasonably interpreted you know um i think a lot of people totally like are smart enough and everything to engage with music theory in a way that would be meaningful for them but um there they have some block like i think that fundamental switch just it, it isn't comfortable which mm-hmm. um, is is you know can be kind of sad sometimes um just i mean sorry i, don't, I hope that doesn't sound kind of sending but j- just because it doesn't I, it doesn't just because i personally think that that you know a lot of musicians could get stuff out of it and sometimes they seem to you know underestimate themselves or whatever sure or, and also i mean um, I-, I will like go out on a limb and say like the broader your set of tools the better you're off. sure yeah, yeah like in anything you know but yeah, so th- so that I think is more is kind of the first instrument because I felt a little bit facile with music like later, like I didn't realize. But I had some sort of weird block, like I can't do guitar. Like I was just no, I, I was like fourteen and I was like I really wanted to, but I just felt like I don't know. Just let me see your fingers. Yeah, <laughs> I have. Um, I have. I just was like, yeah. When you're a kid, sometimes it's you get this idea and stuck in your head, you know, oh, that's not for me or I'm not a that person uh-huh. or whatever that. Um, but yeah, then like senior year, the second semester when it was all kind of like getting a little looser, a friend of mine was just like, oh, well, I'll, I'll teach. I'll give you some bass guitar lessons for free. Um, You'd already had the bass and started. No, no. Okay. He, it was just a total like, right. hey, you know, um, that's a good question. I wonder where the bass came from. I think I then just immediately went on eBay and got something or yeah. something like that. Remember what it was? Um, yeah, it was an Ibanez uh, lefty uh, sound gear, like the cheapest one. You yeah, know, 100, 150 bucks. Purple. Um, no. Yeah, it's just <laughs> a, weird, a weird black. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so this poor guy, uh, Jim Castellaro. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. By the way, if you're listening, probably not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he just had no idea, like how what he was signing up for in terms of how much lessons I would want. Really? Yeah. So I just learned like how much practicing I was willing to do. So, cause I had it in my mind that this was already senior year of high school. Like people, people are like good at guitar. They've been yeah. playing guitar since they were eight, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So I'm just like, fuck, I'm completely like so behind, you know, like uh-huh. as only like a teenager, a person who truly actually does have a lot of time ahead of them can feel, <laughs> can feel, um, 
but you know it was good it made me practice a lot and so yeah and it was always bass i never i like i have a guitar now and i i play with it but um yeah yeah but yeah i, I didn't learn i played bass for about six years and it was only ever finger style no and pick. then i learned to use a pick when i joined Krellis because you never picked before that yeah because uh was that like an aesthetic thing like oh like, well, I i'm sorry i had played guitar no I've, I did make a major omission that I, I had actually played guitar, guitar with a pick in a band, but I'd still never played bass with a pick at that point. Cause yeah. I was sort of like, uh, you know, people get attached to these ideas. And so I was like a fingers bass. Yeah. Guy, yeah, yeah. You know? I'm, I'm sure I'm, you've known stuff like that. I was like, but bass um, was my first instrument. And oh, I had gotcha. that dumb added. Like, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to say it's dumb, but right. that was my thing. Is, yeah, oh, yeah, man, yeah. I don't use a pick. Okay. Yeah, if yeah, I played no, bass exactly. now, I would use a pick on everything. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, um, I still I still mix it up, but for my like in terms of all of everything I'm playing, but for like my metal bands, it's all it's just almost always pick. It just, I mean, that's what that's how that music's of, played. Yeah, exactly. Pretty. Much. I had this and, crazy conversation the other day with Melvin Gibbs. You know him? Sounds really like, familiar. Bass player extraordinaire. He was with Rollins Band for years. Um, just oh, okay, yeah, yeah, motherfucker yeah. on the yeah, bass. Yeah, yeah. He was telling me that like his like, now because he's like you know late fifties. And we were just kind of talking about like what he's been listening to, what he's working on. And he was like, what I'm working on is going all the way back as far as I can with recorded music and identifying what survived. He's like, for instance, slap bass, it had a moment, it didn't survive. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah, so you you were like walking bass lines and shit? Um, well... No, my interest was only ever to play metal because I was already like older, you know, uh -huh. like like I wasn't just like, oh, I'll play guitar. Like I had really I had specific ideas about the kind of bands I wanted to do before I was like playing, yeah. you know, since it was coming like later and I'd had this whole musical identity. So, yeah, in terms of fingers, my focus was more about how to like um, try to emulate tremolo guitar, you know, try to play really right. like you know, fast 16th notes or fast triplet groups. Um uh, but did, so you never you completely bypassed, like sorry a Jocko I, thing. No, I totally had that, and I, okay. and I sh I shouldn't really. I just never did anything with it in school or really with other people. But yeah, like the first many years that I was playing, I definitely felt the um need for like an education in jazz. And did you go to music? Attempted school? that no. Uh -huh. Um, I just I took like some harmony classes and stuff at the school I yeah. went to, but, which is um, where University University of Chicago, right. Which Lev also went to, so we kind of built our. We already knew each other in high school, and but I didn't. I didn't play music then. Uh -huh. But then I went away to school, having just started, and kind of spent a year, my freshman year, you know, practicing. And then by I was kind of good enough to play with Lev by the time he. Yeah. Uh, he he came a year after me. Yeah, um, yeah. And then that was you know that school is pretty isolated. So was it Evanston, right? Uh, no, no, it's it's, it's a it's the South Side actually. Okay. Oh um, shit! Right, right. And there's just not there's not. At least there weren't that many, like, you know, music, whatever, artistically-minded kids there or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, we kind of had this practice space in our dorm, like, all to ourselves, which I think would definitely not be the case at, like, NYU or something. No. Like that, you know? So we just we just grinded it, you know, long winters and just getting the sort of death metal uh, aesthetics together. But, yeah, no, I mean, I had all sorts of books. I used to try to play uh, transcriptions of Ron Carter and um, uh -huh. uh, things. Like, I, you know, it's just not something. At a certain point, I was kind of like, okay... I am who I am, and like that's that. You know what I mean. I'm not trying to necessarily play like seriously in any sort of jazz context. Sure. I find it just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing that I kept was uh, from that was uh, a Motown uh, 
like basically the two things I study practicing are uh, the Bach cello suites because those are in bass clef and just mm -hmm. endlessly, you know, that's just I could I'm not even gonna start talking about that because it's just really good for a musician to play, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you want um, if you want to understand sort of harmony, go teachers, to Bach. Yeah, teaches yeah. you music theory in, implicitly. Um, but that the basically the that teaches like everything I would want to know about music via bass guitar could be there. Everything except one concept which is syncopation. Uh -huh. um, and so for that, uh, I have this book of James Jamerson, Motown bass lines. Yeah. Um, try to work on that stuff. Cause obviously there's a, that gets really into it. You know, you can, a lot of times I can just cycle like two beats or well, you know, one, four, four bar that has uh -huh. enough, like uh, if it's like 16th note bass syncopation, things like that. And, but I think it keeps you sharp, it keeps you able to guys like James Jamerson, like, you know, people still like, I, he's, he's still the dude. I know it's impressive, you know. And those and those were improvisations. Yeah. Those, I mean, he he to me is the is one of the um, embodiments of a the jazz like ideal. Even though he probably wouldn't have called himself a jazz musician in those contexts, but like just that, you know, because I feel like there's kind of like the classical ideal, which is that the piece is the thing, and like you pour everything of yours to make like the piece or this mm -hmm. collection of pieces the best thing you can be. Whereas to me, I see the jazz thing, and again, I don't take me as an authority on anything, but this is just how I see sure. it personally. The jazz thing is more you you build like yourself, yeah. Be, like you and your playing practice is the your voice, the artwork, um, yeah. and then your when you play, it's kind of like you spin off these impressions of like where you were at it. I think that's an absolutely time. fair assessment, cool, yeah. and so, totally like yeah. And that and that and that's James Jamerson. You know, he was just he had the motherfuckerness like in him, and it's it just, just came it, out in these two hour sessions. That and again, like we can still study, and I can look at it line for line and be like, yeah, he's increasing the rhythmic density like fifteen percent. And like each, you know, each uh, several bars, you know, so that the whole song, even though it's the same chord changes um, again and again, like it's it's building towards something, yeah. you know, like adding slightly more dissonances. Like, yeah, you can just, man, it's all there. I'm going <laughs> to fuck around with some James Jamerson tonight. <laughs> Have you spent much time watching interviews with him? No, that's a good idea, actually. Um, you know, he's one of those guys, he's a bit like Jocko, where I'm scared to dig. Like his personal life was pretty sad. Yeah. Um, although maybe... Less so than Jocko and more just at the end when he drank himself to death. So yeah. I, I guess maybe for that reason. I also have these, I had this impression that those guys weren't really interviewed as much as they should they have back in the day. But, but, but yeah, I'm sure you can find some I mean, all I mean my... he, was a, he was the main guy on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Like, obviously, yeah. he was a music star. Yeah, no, everyone knows. I remember when I first started playing <laughs> bass, I had this camp counselor. Um... By the way, second track on What's Going On, if you're going to listen to something, that's like... That's it? That's the most... That's me, a weird... Me, James Jamerson baseline. That's a fucking weird record. Yeah, yeah. Very, like, People don't not, talk about how weird it is. Not there. Yeah. All right, you know what? Like, not present in a certain... You know, not... Not forward with its presence. Sorry, yeah. does that make any sense? No, this makes like I, almost like Sade, the way it's right. like not. You know, she's kind of ambient. I feel like, like if people <laughs> like if you ask like any guy in the street, hey man, well, is Marvin Gaye awesome? People are like, yeah, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, anyone would say that. But I bet if you put on that record like in a restaurant, like within ten minutes, people would be like, can you turn this yeah, off? I yeah. don't know what this is. What's this weird Prague? Uh, yeah, well, I feel like for some reason the um, sexual healing is that's like. <laughs> that's like the part that, and that, I don't song. really care for that it's but that's like the song. thing you could turn turn on in a restaurant and everyone would get it yeah no um, <laughs> but like one of the things I love about jazz and I'm saying this as a, like a fan of jazz music is the biographical nature of the people involved with it you know for me I can't listen to Coltrane and not frequently think about who he was what his personal um, like his struggle with drugs his you know his devotion to his you know beliefs in God and like, like Lester Young is my guy. And there's these interviews with Lester Young 
towards the end of his life where he's, you know, sloshed. He's just a completely dysfunctional alcoholic. And it's the saddest thing to listen to. And it adds, as a listener, to me, more. It, 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 I thought he ripped my heart out of my chest like <laughs> as much as he could. He right, continues right. to do it more uh, so. Yeah, well, that's cool. So, Bach Jello Sweets and James Jamerson. Yeah. And there were some metal bands that, um, that published their music, like officially trans- uh, transcription. Right. Um, yeah, you know, all in the sort of, uh, there was a wave in the, 2000s, um, I mean, you'd say it continued, but you know, that stuff that could have generally gathered under the technical death metal label that was more just kind of like I was saying earlier, the more musician y mm-hmm. side of um, obviously this gets like really dumb really quick, but there's some really good stuff in it. You know what I mean? Just to just door, you're just getting into like totally. dream, dream theater type terror. But yeah, there was this band, Martyr, who um, is most known now as like a footnote because basically the main guitarist is the guitarist for Voivod now since mm-hmm. they're. Um, their longtime founding guitarist like died, um, right. so it's sort of one of these honorable, uh, honorable substitutions. You know what I mean? Like, Void sure. fans are really like, okay, well, yeah, the guy died, and the yeah. other guys want to continue the band, and this guy's really awesome. I mean, his, you know, Martyr was like a a hyped up kind of death metal Void basically. But yeah, they published every instrument, including the bass, and that In was staff like staff notation, not yeah. tabs. Oh uh, no, right. and t- it, well, you know, like rhythmic tab, okay, um, which is all that I ever do where it's like right. it's the staff but the, just so you can get the sh- fingering shape because in right this sort of music it actually matters um, it really matters yeah 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 um and yeah it was just really you know i, I kind of felt like i had a flip at a certain point like i i wanted to play established band songs but i just felt i couldn't reliably figure out what was going on so I, at a certain point i needed that source of just the, ba- the, just know, the band having been and, like this yeah. is right like just to huh. forget about whether or not it's right and just practice it because otherwise you're kind of trying to do both you know yeah um and that led to some interesting stuff you know just because i didn't understand production at that point um there's this band uh, carcass you know pretty famous and um yeah. they uh they started out like very kind of messy grindcore but they they got to a kind of like finesse um melodic kind of death metal style and they have some uh you know some pretty acrobatic guitar stuff and i didn't know that their bass is just kind of like quiet in the mix and kind of a really fuzzy tone and always playing like a, a pretty like reduced version of mm-hmm. the part you know so i would try to hear these records because their guitars are already down to b anyway so in terms of hearing that so i would like you know, figure that I, as the bass player, had to like learn all these but crazy as fucking. As an electric bassist, <laughs> who, with specific interest in in metal, what did you make of records like Injustice for All and Rain and Blood, where you know classic metal records where the bass is basically inaudible? Um. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't. I think I just assumed that I was missing something. You know, <laughs> that the bass was kind of there. But that it wasn't. I mean, a good example, like everyone talks about Injustice for All, but there's, even though it's Cliff Burton, there's not very much bass on Ride the Lightning if you no. listen to just like the mix, except there's like a couple I mean, parts. Aesthetically, where it the mixes peaks out. in that time period weren't right, particularly right. bass heavy. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. They were bass frequency heavy. Right. That's right. what they, they would woof out the guitars so much that the, they kind of took all the space that the bass yeah. could have possibly, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I just assumed I wasn't getting it. There was, some, huh. there was something I wasn't perceiving, and it was only like later after I, um, you know, joined Kralis and did a bunch of records with Colin and really got 
inside the process of recording and mixing that you and know, understanding frequency that, well, then you and... just learn like it's just a fader it just needs to go up this is not rock that's really this is not a super you know, in, in in cases like like and justice for all could have a fine bass mix they just chose to turn it down you know it's just one of those things yeah it's not it's not a mystery it's not like the um you know because you then there would be examples that would prove this like um cannibal corpse uh is sort of in part led by its bassist Alex Webster. They've had, oh, they've only ever had one. Um, and, you know, and he writes a lot of the, uh, like writes the initial riffs for the songs and stuff like that. Um, writes a lot of lyrics and things like that. And, you know, even though he's fingers and he doesn't use distortion or anything like that, like you can hear him clearly, even on the really early records, because that was just, ob- you know, I think it's a thing. It becomes obvious in the social dynamic of the group that uh-huh. this guy's important and he has to be heard. And then everyone is actually like, Hey, yeah. You know, right. um, but of course, there's just as many like um, famous like robberies. I was just reading this thing. Uh, a guy, an internet friend, uncovered me. This guy, Steve DiGiorgio, who is kind of like the Jocko of of '90s death metal, in that he played, <laughs> in that he played fret. No, so, well, he, I mean, l- he played fretless. He played fretless, and he definitely, if you listen to his licks, he's definitely he definitely heard Jocko once or twice. You know, what I'm saying, sure, but, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he yeah. played for death. Um, he played for Testament. He played for okay, yeah, yeah, a yeah. Bunch of, yeah, he was kind of like the guy with that vibe in those or in those bands. Yeah. Um, and he played on this record, Human, which is um, basically my favorite death record. Uh, and he's got some just he has he's on the record after that individual thought patterns, and he has a total fair shake mix, and you can totally hear that it's fretless and it's uh-huh. it's just perfect. It's just exactly what it needs to be, you know. But um. But on Human, it's one of those things where his bass lines are arguably even crazier and more just like all over the fretboard. And they, yeah, they just, they did, they turned up the bass on the guitars like a lot and they made the kick drum super clicky and just put the bass basically at, you know, at I mean, zero. I, I don't know how, like. <laughs> so, you know, that, that could. I studied, you know, the, I, I studied audio production. That's what my degree is in. And I was in engineering school in 2001. And I specifically remember, and when I think back on it, this is a very progressive thing for this idiot school in Nashville to teach, was that if you want to make a mix sound heavier, and we were talking specifically about drums, guitars, bass, you turn the bass up. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, and yeah, you listen to the fucking... With Colin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he, it, it's like, it's so weird, because it seems like that's like such common sense that those records have like so little bass. Well, that's the thing, is hev- heaviness... I'm making finger quotes, but <laughs> yeah. heaviness with finger quotes um, can come from a lot of sources. It can come from having the kick drum be like 40% of the mix. If right. It's like a totally ripping right. metal drummer. It can come from doing Metallica, you know, EQ scoop on your guitars and multi-tracking the crap out of them and having them tuned down to to B anyway. So uh-huh. they're, you know, I mean, Meshuggah is a great example. They, they love eight-string guitars. Yeah. Um, and you you know about eight strings how it's so you got a six string guitar right right and you have a seven string you add another low string and that's a, another fourth below you know right it's a B uh, or fifth below or whatever um, the same the same intervals everything and then you go another one so you go F sharp right and then to be you know metal they tune everything down a half step like the from the, the lowest F sharp they tune it down from there to F so their lowest the, <laughs> oh so that's just the first fret of a normal four string bass it's that same F yeah, yeah, yeah. not like a unison with so, so it's like all bass players so what yeah what is the utility of the bass guitar in Meshuggah at that point you know it's literally just adding the different timbre of like playing those strings with a pit you know what I mean so I, the, all I mean to say is heaviness such as it is 
can come from lots of sources. There are bands that are totally, there are like doom metal bands that don't have a bass player. They just have a mega low tune guitar. Frequency is drums, not a so. fucking joke. I think it's the thing that people really need to begin. To, like, <laughs> everyone needs to really like spend some time with. And I had this, you know, so I, you know, I knew you were coming over this afternoon and I was walking around um, doing errands and I was listening to the new Kralis EP uh, on my iPod while I was walking around. And this has happened to me more than once with Meshuggah. It's happened to me with the band Esoteric and it happened to me today listening to the first track on the EP Wolf I get like unexpectedly emotionally choked up. Oh man! I start feeling like <laughs> like like weak in the chest, you know, like I'm gonna start crying, and I don't. It it happens to me a, a good bit with music, all different kinds of music, but not that often with metal, and I I can't always put my finger on why it's happening. Hmm. Well, that, I mean, that makes me happy. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's a lot of this is just the search for like those kind of chord progressions that are gonna do that. You know, yeah. give you uh, goosebumps. It, like, it makes me feel vulnerable. Um, I'm listening to it, and I feel like in that moment, um, like the music is just taking me over, and I feel like at any moment something like I'm just not emotionally like stable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean. Yeah. I, to me, it sounds like it's working. Yeah. That's, so that makes me feel good. It's also funny you say esoteric because, like I said, that first song, the kind of doomier one, is uh, um, is material that's quite a bit old, you know, older than anything else released recently. And uh, I think it was when I was listening to a lot of esoteric. I mean, esoteric is, <laughs> that is some heavy. I mean, I don't mean like metal heavy. I mean like as great as you could possibly. Like, though, I put those guys on such a high ledger. Yeah, no, they definitely were doing some. I mean, talk about... Uh, bringing your, you know, dudes with guitars band into some sort of, like, other sort of space, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, making things. I mean, there are egg, like egghead yeah. opera composers who yeah. can learn a lot from that band. <laughs> so you go to University of Chicago, you and Lev get serious about mm -hmm. creating uh, this language together. Well, we hooked up with... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. We hooked up with this uh, uh, guy who was older... I was 19, Lev was 18, this guy was like 24, named Voiskalf, who had what came from Cincinnati, and he was doing a PhD... He was just starting a PhD at University of Chicago, um, and he had been in a death metal band called Internison, Internison. Um, that had had this guy, Jared Anderson, who would go on to front Morbid Angel like a little bit, and but also play more in um, the band Hate Eternal with um, Eric Rutan, the also former Morbid Angel guitarist. Uh, and basically, it's like Cincinnati kind of just had like a real death metal scene, like the kind of scene I had like you know, um, wanted to find in New York. I mean, obviously New York at that point of me growing up had a death metal scene because these uh -huh. bands, Suffocation, et cetera, existed, but it didn't, it wasn't present. It wasn't in Manhattan. So, right. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that felt accessible to me. Whereas the Cincinnati thing he'd been part of was kind of like that, where it was just, um, yeah, just a bunch of bands that just, um, people with sort of similar goals, uh, and all, all focused on, yeah, there's this very, um, not flashy, uh, not like elaborate or Ingve Malmsteen, but just pummeling um, and 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 exacting and and physical death metal, but not but again neither neither too flashy nor too caveman, but definitely with the, like I don't know if you know this band Deeds of Flesh, but that sort of felt like the right. uh, the watchword, you know, just a kind of cool, clean precision, but not too not too precise and inhuman, you know, messy. Yeah. And, um, and so yeah, he just you know, there's a thing with death metal. Uh, there's a physicality with playing it of just like, you know, sometimes you're learning. It's just like, okay, this riff is only like five notes, but it's just that. 
at a certain speed, like over and like, do I really have to play this dumb riff? That I many mean, times, yeah, it's, you know? it's exhausting. You no, so I think it just needs. We needed another person's um, like set of expectation. You know, this guy who was really with like, yes, it does have to be that fast. It doesn't, you know, That's to bring us all to the sort of common understanding of just. And he was a little bit older. Yeah, he was a bit older. He'd yeah. been in bands with these guys. He had actually opened for Morbid Angel. It was right. like he was he was he, the, the the guy, you know. Yeah. Um, and 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 the funny thing is, just like with playing guitar generally, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember before I played guitar, just trying it on a friend's instruction and being like, oh my God, you have to hold the string down so hard. Like, yeah, how yeah, you... yeah, yeah. But, you know, eventually you get used to that. And similarly, you get used to playing the dumb death metal riff a million times. You I know, was, it all I, starts I, to flow, you know. I but... did a session the other night and like in between shit, I asked my friend, I was like, oh man, can I play your bass for a minute? And I picked up the bass and within like 10 seconds, I felt like, like a 90 year old. Yeah, I was like, I don't have the strength for this. That used to be my goal was to get that burn every day. It's At that's a great a goal. Bit, I yeah. actually it's funny that you say that because you know I, I play woodwinds, and I always know if I can feel this little callus on the side of my lip, I've always been like I've, oh I've, man. See, I have I really respect. I think woodwinds are awesome. I respect that. I um, but I just can't imagine my breathing apparatus being the like. Just knowing what it, happens yeah. to hands, you know, right. because hands are how I like execute music. If that was like my lips and mouth and lungs, I'd honestly, like, oh, it's no, don't, don't one of the most beautiful and satisfying things <laughs> to finish a gig and have a pain in your side and maybe right, have blood right. in your mouth. Yeah. I'm dead serious. No, no, like I, it, I, you I feel totally like you showed up. Yeah, yeah. I you know, totally and I, I mean, I'm all for responsible musicianship, right? But, but shit happens yeah, sometimes. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, so did you guys both move back to New York right after school? Um. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there were a lot of detours. You know, we had this band for like a year, and then I actually moved to Poland. Um, what? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't like move to move, but it was like a, you know, go abroad, like kind Where? of, you know, um, Krakow. Beautiful city. Uh, yeah, it was It was amazing. Um, I mean, it was this whole thing, you know, it was like drama, just being a young. Basically, I had gone to Norway um, the summer after freshman year. I had, was like, that like a black metal? Like, finagled. Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, I finagled this like grant to do it because I chose to take Norwegian. Um, and that totally was just because I like black metal. It was 2000. <laughs> it was 2001. I had just read Lords of Chaos and I needed like a language requirement. Like, I gotta go burn a church. So. But no, but come to think of it, this actually, that, that class was how, was basically why I'm in Kralis because I met this guy, Max Schneider, who's uh -huh. like an artist now. And he had been friends with Mike Lerner, who is the, guitarist at Behold the Octopus, who, right. who's um, from L.A., um, and Mike Lerner uh, became friends with Colin at NYU, and they became roommates, and they started Behold the Octopus together. Mm -hmm. um, with Charlie on drums originally, right? Yeah, Charlie's yeah but yeah. this was when they were just a duo with drum programming, okay. to, you know, um, and then we, you know, so kind of we all converged. Uh, oh, yeah, because my friend only stayed in... Uh, in Chicago for a year, and then he went. He went down to New York, and then they were all kind of hanging out, and it was just obvious, you know. I mean, yeah. it was a bummer. It was like Lev and I would hang out with these guys who were obviously perfect, and we had more than enough people who were good at various instruments to make a bunch of groups. But Lev and I were signed up for the next four-ish years, you know, right. to live in Chicago, so it wasn't going to happen. But um, but yeah, so we did kind of know each other, and yeah, then I had all this, you know, personal stuff or whatever, and like you know, ro romance or whatever, and that yeah, that. Yeah. Got, that that got me uh, out to Poland. Well, yeah, I had done the Norway thing, and that was where, you know, I met people and stuff like that. And then, um, but I also had an interesting realization in Norway, which was that the black metal scene that I sort of expected from the books was already over. Oh, yeah. Um, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. way, like, and it's funny, because people, I would meet people that would think 
there was that shit was still going on you know in like 2009 it's like dude no i was there in 2001 everyone's favorite song was that turbo negro i got erection uh-uh. <laughs> like there was no... it's so funny to hear you say that because literally like to this day like european tourists come to new york and they go to 52nd street to see where jazz right. like bebop Bro, was born yeah, yeah exactly and they're it's like what like the that. fuck yeah, yeah. is this so what i but what i the people i did meet there who were super into metal were polish they were italian yeah that stuff um, gets americans uh german yeah i mean yes but uh but but i'm actually focusing on the good side of okay. just like this was a i wanted i wanted people who were like still interested in making this music and and propagating it and that wasn't happening in norway because it was already 10 years too late and it was probably only ever like six people to begin with yeah you know? um but it had radiated out and things so that was kind of how i hooked up with um like my polish friends was just that they were the ones who were actually doing bands and stuff mm-hmm. like that um so then I moved there, and that was actually cool because that was less about black metal. That In those days, I was way more obsessed with death metal, and there was a really great scene for death metal in the 2000s in Poland. Um, uh, this, the band Behemoth, which mm-hmm. is obviously super famous, is they've kind of like... They're kind of like the Starbucks that's hoovered up like all of the cachet of <laughs> right. this scene. You know, like right. the one band that like... But, but at the time, you know... Um, well, there's Decapitated, who are like really boring now, but they Decapitated. Had, yeah, but yeah, they yeah, had yeah. a really good run. Um, yeah, and this band Yattering, um, Skeptic, Azeroth, uh, they were just, you know, um, uh, but like kind of in what I was saying of like this realm of death metal that's not like too precise and Ingbe yeah. Malmsteen, but it's not also Caveman. You kind of have that, you know, it's still musically exacting, but it wants to be more interesting than like show you chops. Um, and I felt like there was a lot of good. So that was a great, like, I don't know, kind of almost p- pilgrimage or something like that, you know, to kind of get my aesthetics right in terms of, you know, and then coming home to Chicago for another two years of school where that was like an aesthetics vacuum because it's just people who, like a lot of people want to be Goldman Sachs bankers when they leave and shit like that, right, you know. Right, right, right. I have no idea about mu- that music is even like a laudable goal. And, then and what, you're to, what you're describing. Specific it, ideas of this hyper niche thing I want to do. But say, but, you're describing <laughs> something so hyper specific. But then we had a scene in Chicago at, at at the school like people would tell me a couple years later they're like well there wasn't any other music scene it's like yeah you're right because there wasn't even just the low level like indie type scene but all of a sudden you know once we once we put a couple shows on campus there were kids who were like freshmen seeing that like holy shit like blah 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 and then we actually had like a couple a couple bands around which was pretty fun um yeah and yeah and that was all just great practice i ended up playing in like three or four projects over the course of that um just knowing that nothing would be that serious because i had to get back to new york mm-hmm. uh and then i got i moved back to new york in july 2007 and they had already i think recorded the first Kralis and they'd done it oh with, really yeah they'd done it with lev it was supposed to just be a one-off it was a mick and colin project and oh wow they actually even hired lev they paid him like a flat fee like a session drummer fee because he was it wasn't a bit to, you know to emphasize to the degree it was not a band right you know that you would hire they'd pay this guy out basically um yeah and the, and the first album colin plays the bass on five of the songs and mick plays the bass on one of them um but then they started getting show offers and i had just moved back you're not on the first Carlos record nope just a second i didn't realize yeah that. yeah uh, i have a vocal Okay. Because I was already in the, like, we had already made this. I think yeah, yeah, they yeah. were mixing it or something. So I had just moved back and they wanted, like, a low vocal on one part. But uh, so Crowd started as a duo project with Mick and Colin. Yeah. Mick but it, And that, that's literally just them wanting to make, like, a one off record. Right. That kind of sounded like that over. I mean, both those guys um, are, you know, intense geniuses of the highest sure, order, yeah. in my estimation. No, no, no argument here. Yeah. <laughs> They're both very, very good at what they do. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so it, it almost just felt kind of like a, 
I don't know, you know, Provenance or something like just, I was literally back for maybe like three months before Colin asked me to play live for them. And were you, were you, uh, you were a fan of what those guys been up to before that? Yeah. Well, like I said, we had, um, I had met Colin at, at that point. I had known him for like four or five years. Yeah. Because, um, our, he was playing that, you know, in the, uh, rewinding a little bit to, you know, like 2002 or 2001 or so when, when my friend from, uh, LA went to uh, went to New York to visit Mike Lerner, who he known from mm. from high school. He he saw Colin give like a demo of War Guitar, of, like Behold Octopus. <laughs> so good. And I remember my friend called me. He's like, "You gotta hear Mike Lerner's roommate play this instrument. It sounds like nine necrophages." <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so yeah, like I said, we we had all just known that, and um, Colin had mixed our the Chicago Estomatus, the Chicago death metal band yeah. that I was talking about earlier. Um, we had done a whole like sort of um. It's common now, but the whole like reamping thing, like yeah. we'd had the drums done in a Chicago studio and then I got an interface and sort of managed all the guitar recording and then sent it all to Colin. And so and he, he reamped it. Yeah. And, it, and um, so, yeah, so that was a, you know, we already knew we could work together a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it just, yeah, they needed a bass player and there I was having prepared for years. For, and I take for it you were excited past. to join up with them. Oh, of course, dude. That was, yeah. I mean, this was like. If you just had asked me at any point in college what I wanted from life, it was to move back to New York and play in a metal band. Like, I had the... I mean, I I criticize the sort of scope of my ambitions now, but it's the truth, you know? I I, I I think about that all I have the same thing, though. Like, like what you were just described now, especially as I'm like, I just turned 39 last week. The time life of of one's life. I wish I had had greater ambitions. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, you know. But I can't beat myself up about it too bad. But but yeah, Mm -hmm. that's that's definitely there to be... To be called upon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you join up with Kraus, and you guys start playing gigs immediately. Yeah, and also, like, like making records. Um, we, we really jumped in. You know, that's kind of been the band's focus. You guys have made, like, um, ten records or something. Yeah, I think this would... Depending on how you count EP, whatever, uh, or full length, this would be nine. Yeah. The, the, the Wolf EP is nine. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it's a lot. And, I mean, they're not... A lot of them are not short, although the new one is. We can, we're dilating a little it's bit. It's, like, 15 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah. go ahead. Oh, well, it's funny. There's a couple things about the new EP that, like, that I, I embraced immediately. And one is, and the band Suffocation has done this to me as a listener. That the the EP Wolf starts really fucking weird. It fades in on something yeah, that's right. already happening, <laughs> and it's not something that happens in metal. And it immediately kind of like shirt. Like it, it for me as the listener, it immediately kind of like knocked me back to like, wait, wait. Did, I had to start it over again. And it completely changed the way I, like, I listen to the piece of music. Suffocation does that to me in that the double bass drums are so loud and so present in the music that I almost like, are these guys like poking fun at the double bass thing? Are they? That's a bit of a cancer on like certain kinds of death metal records. Yeah. Like sometimes they seem to have lost all sense of proportion of just what, what the, what, what you should be hearing the most of and yeah it's just but all that is to say is <laughs> i greatly appreciate when any record immediately stops me from like natural uh perhaps lazy listening habits well good that's cool yeah, yeah. i mean uh i think that might have i think that that fade up might have been more collins idea i forget we were just bouncing ideas off each other um but but for me in terms of like how i see stuff like that because i i actually love exactly what you talked about uh-huh. um but uh I think that comes from, um, like, my background from my 
dad is in film and I like worked. Your dad works in film? Yeah. Um, what does he do? He's a, well, he's basically retired now, but he's an AD assistant director really? and he was on uh Law and Order SVU for really? like a really long time. I've seen literally yeah. every episode. <laughs> really? <of that. laughs> Wait, Colin and I have a death metal song that's on Law and Order. <laughs> that's like Dude. one of the red herrings. It's the one with um um I think the other plot is that Kathy Griffith is is in it, if you remember She's that one. A couple times. Okay, yeah. Well we, we <laughs> Dude, but no, because it's like it's like the red herring is like this solo metal guy. Uh-huh. So they look, you know, because they find his logo at a murder scene. Yep. So then they look up his video on YouTube, and it's it's me and Colin. All right, we're gonna hit pause for one second because I got to tell you something. Okay. This is fucking weird now because my wife and I, we both work our asses off. We like almost never see each other. Uh-huh. The one thing we do together. Is SVU is grounding and is like all about us being at home together. She will come in and be like, "There's a new Law and Order," and we fucking sit, lay down in bed and watch it. Uh, and the other thing is, I don't even know if I should say this or not. Hunter, no, I said it out. Hunt Hendricks, uh-huh. his father saved our marriage. Oh, because they're marriage counselors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know about that. Yeah, and I knew him more as, as authors, but yeah. I, I don't. I don't know Hunter. We've met before. I remember seeing his name. And like that's not a real fucking name. And then I was reading. I was read. Like we like we did the work. Like uh, sorry, people. If this is not interesting to you, but <laughs> so you can edit it. No, I'm gonna leave it in. Fuck these people. Um, we <laughs> that book. His dad's his dad's form of marriage therapy works. Cool. I mean, I think lots of therapy works. I'm way. all about therapy. I'm all about therapy. But like, like I, I, I have sold it on friends who are trying to save their marriages. Oh, yeah. That's right, so. crazy. But that's crazy that you didn't even meet through them. Yeah. <laughs> um. You guys have good parents. So your dad... Okay, so, but, so <laughs> what I was trying to say is, is just that I, <laughs> I think of music from a sort of like filmic perspective a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think like I, I probably my most um, over like my most kind of uh, overused concept in imagining like uh, a song from sort of the top level is is narrative um mm-hmm. so a, a part like that like at the beginning of that i i uh, again i forget whose idea it was it, it was probably collins um but i fell in love with it instantly because um it's that idea of like in media race if i'm saying that right you know like when the movie or tv show starts or whatever and it's like you're in you're the in, middle yeah. of the action you can tell you didn't get the setup and you got to kind of figure it out the fly um, to me, that that conjures something like that. Of oh, just like, great. oh, hey, here, whoa, yeah, already like a lot of shit in motion. I got to catch up, you know. And then we, and then we kind of start at the real beginning. So um, you grew up so. watching a lot of film with your dad. Um, yeah, I mean, well, sure. Who you know, who doesn't? But uh, but I mean, also maybe just an appreciation of um, uh, I would see scripts and boards and stuff like uh-huh. that. My dad had a he had. A, <laughs> He was in the running to do the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. To be an AD on it. Or he might not have been that high yet, but he's just in the production chain. He actually, his first job, by the way, for all the horror maniacs, was a PA on Chud, which I'm extremely proud of. Yeah. (laughs) Is that a Roger Corman thing? I don't think so. It just okay. feels like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah, it was yeah. just some independent New York. It's honestly like not a well-made. It's so slow. Chad sucks, but, but it's amazing. You know, obviously, if you grew up fucking yeah. in the eighties like me. That was like an icon. It's like the Warriors or something. You know, yeah. like yeah, well, everybody even, knows. Like, I would always see it at the video store and be like, you know, we should probably get that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no. So he didn't get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but he oh, one of sucks. my birthday parties was a dramatic reading of the script of the heretofore unreleased movie because he still had it. 
You know, <laughs> yeah, which I remember thinking was pretty rad. That's like pretty an rad. Eight year old or something. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, maybe just a bit of, and like work, working production in high school and stuff, just in the summer and stuff as like my summer job. Like, I think it just um, a bit of an appreciation for like how the sausage is made. Totally, uh, totally, absolutely, a thousand percent. Like, like I mean, film is something I've realized recently because it's, in the last couple of years, it's become something I spend most of my time, my free time with. You gotta learn how to watch stuff, just like you have to learn how to listen to stuff. Sure, yeah, and there's different genres, but I think music is great because they, um, there's a variety of approaches, and for certain people, like a more dance-oriented music, it's not a narrative. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a loop. It's like an experience, right? Uh, capsule that you're just kind of in, and it and it conveys a mood for, you know, you're in you're in of it, and and then you're out of it. But um, yeah, I always. Kind of all, I mean, sometimes I end up there, um, you know, in sort of loop-based songs or more kind of ambient type stuff. But for most metal, the metaphor I think of is that my songs are just like careening headlong towards the ending. You know, like that's what I want, that feeling <laughs> to of get just, to the end. <laughs> just inexorable, well, that you're in it, but you're just inexorably being drawn with the next part and then the next yeah, part yeah, and then, yeah. you know, like, bam, oh, here we are. Oh, this is like, the, this must be, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forward forward motion. So when you joined Kraus, did you feel like a member, like... Like, were you just playing the parts, or were you also contributing ideas? It took, um, I mean, obviously just, you know, <laughs> just to say this, I always felt totally, you know, respected or whatever, yeah. creatively and everything like that. But it, yes, it took quite a long time. Frankly, when I joined, I did not feel I was as good a musician as Colin or Mick. I mean, I'm not sure I'd even make that claim now, but right. I felt like... I felt kind of like I could I could only barely hang, sure. you know, as people say, um, and kind of and that feeling. was and that was like okay, yeah, and, and but that was also okay because of course you know most of the first shows were just playing the album and the bass lines were written and I had just learned them all. Um, a nice advantage of Collins' production is that I could basically learn them from listening to the records since the bass is nice and loud. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but yeah, I had, I had basically learned them all. Um, in terms of playing with a pick, just this might not be interesting to people, but just since you're a bass player, like the the funny thing was is I had you know I had on a single note I could tremolo, I could uh -huh. get like a like um, by doing this three finger flutter thing. Right. But um, the thing that Kralis had that just could not be done with fingers was like a slower strum on a two note chord. Mm -hmm. um, like a power chord or something like a dang a dang a dang a dang a dang a There's mm -hmm. tons of that in the first four albums, and um, it just that just it doesn't come. It through. just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't so come that that was like the one deal breaker, and then I just decided to kind of do it. There were the first two albums. I'm I'm switching. I'm putting the pick back and doing some finger stuff. Um, but yeah, so I was just yeah I was just learning their shit, and then when we were working on the second album, because that just sort of continued from this creative boom that the first album had come out of. Uh, they already had bass lines um, associated with a lot of their right. riffs. So, like on the second album, the first song and the fifth song, um, they're roughly 11, 12 minutes. And it actually is like four minutes of bass by me, four minutes of bass by Colin, really? four minutes of bass by <laughs> That's Mick. Hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were definitely some certain ideas that I associated strong. Like, Mick was great at writing the ones where it's like a. A note like a bass note, just like hanging. He always called this "Today is the day." He associated, but I, I think it comes from lots of places. Uh -huh. But like, you know, a bass note just like not tremoloed at all, just like hit it, and then hit like wait like a good long while, and then hit like a high note or whatever. While you have the rest of everyone else yeah. in the band is totally raging, but just you know those style of bass. Notes. I love that. Yeah, he he was really good. He that, you know that's something I love about like, that, like rock so. bass music is that very thing you just described, which is on a record like people. You're not gonna hear that in jazz. You're not gonna put on a Coltrane record and Elvin's playing the bass line, right? right. <laughs> like you're just not, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, but yeah, it's. I mean, 
in a sense, almost everyone in Kralis, I this, I've been thinking about this lately because we've been doing a kind of musical chairs of switching up the writing. Um, yeah. And it's sort of a beautiful fact. It's, it's probably going to har- sound harsh when I say it out loud, but I think of it is a beautiful fact that ev- everyone in Kralis is kind of replaceable or like redundant, just in the terms of both of those guys could play, you know, both of those guys could play bass. Like I can write guitar parts, like... I can, I can write. Let's use modular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can write drum stuff. I can, you know. I mean, nobody is replaceable from of the per- personal yeah. vibe, but everyone has the ability to, for a song or two, write almost anyone else's part, mm-hmm. you know, in the band. And 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 we have been doing that. You know, that's a, that's what's great is because obviously we don't want to change the personnel. But nine albums in, how do you find you know new dynamics and. But that's the thing is that, you know, Colin, the drum writer, is very different from Colin, the guitarist, and very different from Lev, the drum writer. You I, know, I, would, so. I would have to also interject, and this is an assumption, the fact that you guys, Colin specifically, handle production within the band is, that's, I mean, that's what with all of Colin's shit, with this Rhythmia, with, you know, and with Gorguts now, but, like, that, that's, that, that adds something to the music. Well, I mean, you're it's, not four cats sitting behind the engineer yeah, yeah, yeah. who's like, you know, strong arming you into anything or doing what they think is right for the mix. Like it's no. And, and frankly, it's it's sort of infected our entire workflow. Like he records every practice just with a two mic setup. Yeah. So that's so we always have that record. And, you know, it's not vague. Like, oh, what did you do last time? It's like we have that and we can all listen to it. And then because Mick and I both use Logic, we're also in the like pre-group practice stage. Um, so our songs usually start as one one of the three guitar, guitar, bass players play writes like pretty much a full song, you know, a full five minute or whatever thing on just one instrument, and mm-hmm. then sends that around, and then the other guys will write their part like p- parallel to that, okay, um, as opposed to going like section by section. Um, but yeah, so since we all have Logic. Uh, and we can like trade it around. Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically kind of, it's all <laughs> like every step of it feels kind of like a recording session. You yeah. know, it's just a matter of there's like three stages of recording session, and the last one is the you know the real one. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a good one. Um, no, it's it's amazing. It's it's like really liberating to me just to just to take the guesswork out and also to take the grind. Like most bands I've been in. You know, especially going back to the less formal early stages, it's like you get into this thing of just like, okay, well, here are our songs, and now and like we have a regular practice, and we just practice those that set list like until we die. Yeah, you know, like people aren't really writing new shit, and we don't really right. have anything. To, you know, and you just get in this thing that's like, oh man, like yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, it can be good when you're getting your your chops and your stuff together, you know, to just drill into something. But sure. at a certain point, you flip over, and it's kind also, of you I mean, know a like, lot of. I don't know. Like maybe so you guys start writing in the room and it's like maybe, you know, one one person's not quite hearing it and they're figuring out what the fuck to do and it's like it's kind of a time waste. Well, also our music is basically impossible to write in the room. Yeah. There's too it's too dense. There's no yeah. we can't be like, "Oh, so you're playing an A. Oh, then I'll I'll try an A sharp. Okay, next 16th next tenth note of a second know? later." Yeah. yeah. Like, that's just not going to happen, you know. Yeah. So we need that prep work and that's kind of what this But yeah, so it wasn't really until like the third album I think that I wrote no, I mean, yeah, because Colin and Mick have bass lines on the, th- at least parts on the third album, and I know a whole song on the fourth album. So really the whole early period, like, which I think of as a sort of defined sound, you know, or whatever atmospheric black mm-hmm. metal type with the uh, the first four records, that era, um, you could say part of part of the essence of that sound was those guys' bass lines, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, 
but you know i also like i was doing uh some of the artwork in that era and a lot of the lyrics and sort of like non-musical conception and stuff like that so it definitely all felt like equal and stuff yeah like, that. And, like i said just had this cool slippery edge of just in terms of who was playing what music you know uh-huh it was no there's no problem with somebody being like hey maybe you could play this guitar part or maybe you play this bass part you know i mean i personally love love that because first of all it's like free music and then it's also like you know uh you know i get to sort of vampirically get their 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 knowledge you know what i mean i mean that was that was really how i viewed uh playing in some of the more sort of like sideman gigs i did um the like bloody panda and cast of it and stuff like that you know both bands you, with, you played in bloody panda yeah i never I was never on a record okay because they didn't they weren't very like uh their record, their their recording process was very disjointed and stuff. Like, but yeah, but yeah. I was in the band for like four years or something. I had no playing, idea playing shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, both those bands just had really interesting writing styles, and it was cool to uh, just you know be in the sort of guts of their music and understand how it works and stuff like that. But I, but I, you know, I kind of knowing that I that I'd probably eventually like withdraw and just want to write my own stuff. Well, so you know? it's funny because I can well. When we were emailing the other day, you mentioned that like you've narrowed down the field of people you play with to essentially like what like four people. Well, it's just three. It's just Colin. Lev. It's just all of Kralis because my other band is just me and Lev. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. But that would it would like is that's just kind of like a, a coincidence that's happening now, or that's. Um, well, I just re- I just you know uh, going dialing back a couple of years, I was in. I was in other bands where I wasn't necessarily like the main creative force. I was just like the bass player or whatever like that. And and that was really great at times. But at a certain point, I just felt stressed out and like I wasn't able to put enough time to writing music or have my Kralis like uh, bass lines or whatever be, you know, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was just like, you know what, if I'm going to like live and work normal jobs and do life stuff and then also like have two bands where I'm I want to be like writing a lot of stuff uh-huh. for it, like that's that's already more time than I have probably. So, yeah. So yeah, the other, the other stuff just had to, you know, it's a kind of thing. Like, again, if I, if I was like independently wealthy or something, like it would be, sure. it would be pretty fun. I mean, there's, there's random shit I want. Like, I'd love to just do only vocals in a, like a slam death metal band. <laughs> <laughs> shit like that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, exactly. But that's not something I'm going to like sacrifice right. real shit for. Right. <laughs> so, you really um, got to zero in on what matters. Yeah. I mean, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I feel very like lucky to be in this situation with guys as good as that and with with a thing where it's hooked up on the recording side so that there's very little time wasted. You know, I know every sort of ounce of good idea I have for Kralis will probably actually end up on a record. And that's like a really powerful thing because a lot of musicians, a lot of musicians, including myself for many years, have not had that. You're just writing and you don't know what am I going to end up in some weird situation where I only have, you know, six hours with the expensive studio and right you know yada yada yeah. right so, i think so yeah wise. so so it just seemed like the thing to do and obviously like still making a record about every year <laughs> does so. that but does that feel limiting to you or does that that's not, that feels like a good pace let's say not yet yeah you know? yeah um it's 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 been really good and and things that you know i've been doing i've been sort of spearheading more and more Krella songs so for now yeah i mean the really the the new ep sounds really fucking different from the stuff that I had heard in the past. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think we're... We're, de- you know, rather than, like, make a new band with a new name, like, I don't think it's that different, you know? Right. It's not, like, new band different, but right. uh, 
but yeah, I mean, I think we're we're not afraid of there just kind of like being heirs to the band. So you know, there was. It's funny because it's kind. Of, it's the kind of thing I can't. It I, should be. I can't even really. Um, because like we're not like Hunter, you know, we don't like decide and announce like a conceptual rubric that, uh-huh. that the album's then going to proceed under. We just kind of you know do it. Right. Um, but then when I look back even though there wasn't much intentionality in what the sound is, you can see very clearly, oh, the first four records group in this kind of sound, and then there's these eras, and now we're kind of exploring more yeah. um, offshoots. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I personally, in my experience, I felt like whenever you sort of switch up the writing structure or things like that, like the band seems really different, but then by the time you get to the end result of everybody playing on it, it actually comes back around to mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. a bit more consistent. And But, yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, We've kind of did it. You know, four albums is more than most, a lot of bands get. Maybe not most, but... It's... So, <laughs> it's up there. Like, that's usually, like, you're good, you know? You did yeah. four albums, so... Um, you know, I can definitely feel the... Um, there seems to be kind of a, like, popular consensus that the fourth album, Your Spass Matter, is, like, the best of that sound, and maybe the best... Do you feel that way? Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Sure, you know, not to get too precious. I can find parts I love yeah, in all of them, but yeah, yeah. I I know what they mean when they say that, and they're not they're definitely not wrong altogether. Right. You know, um, so there is a certain you know I can feel a pull to just make that album again and again, mm-hmm. um, and that and I definitely bands do that. You know, that might be like the bolt thrower path or something like that, and that's great. You get a ton of great bolt thrower albums that sound more or less the same and like really right. That sounds rule. really depressing to me. Well. We didn't do it, so I can't yeah, really say. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we haven't done it, you know. I, I um, yeah, that, hmm, yeah. I, and I, I think I, a lot of bands just do it. Position. A lot of bands just do it involuntarily because they have lineup changes, right? Um, and they have to find a new way to work, and they have new people, and that's just what it, what the music is now. It's funny, like Ko Dot, for instance. But, you know Ko Dot, like literally every record yeah, sounds yeah. like a. Although I would actually maybe put that in another category of the like one mastermind band, which is a lot of bands too. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that was almost that. I don't want to say depressing, but that was a striking fact when I when I got more into knowing, you know, playing in bands and knowing how they're composed on a sort of personal level, and the number of bands that really just come down to like the one guitarist who wrote all the songs and just sort of you know like a Billy Corgan basically yeah. just assembled a band to make his vision, but. He was still kind of like that. That, uh, that freaked you out. It was a, uh, it was a little disillusioning because I thought all bands were a hundred percent collaborative. Right. <laughs> you know, that's all. I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want four, four people that means twenty five percent of men. And I and I thought there was a really like I always thought Trent Reznor was really striking because the the sort of public lore on him was that he was more mostly personal responsible for his records, but he got guys to like play the drums or this yeah. and that, you know. So he was in that category, but then Smashing Pumpkins is like a, a band, you know, but it turns out no, actually, you know, and Megadeth isn't a band either. It's just right. one guy and blah, 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 you know. So, right. Um, yeah, I guess uh, you're making me analyze why I had such a strong reaction, but yeah, it just seems a little like, oh, really? Just, you, you could just fire everyone. It's just that guy, you know. What? I mean, I've never owned a Smashing Pumpkins record. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I don't like them, and no, I don't, I know, I don't, I don't like that we're talking about them so much. Well, but. But no, but I, I, I actually did see them live at Lollapalooza one time. I will say this. I've never given a goddamn fuck. Like, I've only, the only songs by Smashing Pumpkins are the ones I know from the radio. And I know that James Yeeha is a guitar player. I know that Darcy is the name of the bass player. Okay. And the drummer is called Jimmy. Indeed. Jimmy Chamberlain. Right. 
so, I agree. <laughs> literally, like, I if if all four of those people died in a plane wreck, it would not change my day for a tenth of a second. But I do know that those are the cats. Right, but I think that, the, but I think that's from the PR of the band. Right, like selling you on this group of cool people because the because the the real test of of what you're saying is if three of those people, not Billy Corgan, had died like in between Siamese Dream and the what uh, the double album, uh-huh. would it have sounded different? And I'm and I'm postulating like. Maybe not that different since you know he just had it in it, you know. Or I, again, just holding them up as an example of a band, which whether or not Smashing Pumpkins really is, I know is out there. That really is just one person sort of holding all the reins. That isn't a collaborative. I don't know why I'm fucking dying on this hill, but you know, I, no, 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 you're not dying. No, no you're, <laughs> like, you're, Nick, you're giving me a gift right now okay. because I have not realized until this moment. Smashing Pumpkins is a gift to all of us <laughs> as a way of understanding things through the lens of this fucking psycho Billy right, Corgan. Right, right. I, I've, I've heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast before, and oh, he's like yeah. a deeply fucked up dude. Yeah, yeah. This no, this is good. I, I've heard. I've no, yeah. I've heard he's he's gone down some interesting political uh, <laughs> rabbit hole. So well, you know, it's funny. Know. One thing about metal is perhaps more than any genre, we have to come to terms with. Uh, can he separate the art from the artist? Right, right. <laughs> Do you know about the breaking the CD thing? I feel like maybe I should bring that up. <laughs> what, when Metallica got pissed off at Napster people? No, but good guess. I do remember that. Um, no, we just had this, uh, we had this like Finnish NS um, musician who's quite prominent, like break a Kralis CD, like on, on a video for his Facebook page for his like, uh, uh, record store that he runs in Finland uh-huh. um, because we'd done this like adult swim single thing in 2016 and it was like an old mix song called uh, hate power and just because it was called that and there, the lyrics weren't released or anything in this format because it was like a weird you know web page single uh-huh. thing um, so we had like a brief you know statement just saying the lyrics take an anti-hate stance just because you know the song's called hate power it could be uh, and, and then it could, that it could up, be about anything. Indeed, that, yeah. could, that ended up getting picked up by like Metal Sucks and Metal Injection and other sort of like, <sighs> and they and they're like news. They're sort of reductive news. The head- brain trust. Yeah, yeah. Well, their their sort of reductive news headline was, Kralis makes anti hate black metal, which is like anti hate black metal. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that's like funny in the so in the metal world yeah. is because, you know, kind of one of the one of the ideas behind black metal like conceptually is that it would be somehow be like a sort of arena you could say a safe space for uh this exploration of just like non-directed generalized abstracted you know hate or mm-hmm. rage or something like that that that's a sort of like furnace behind the music's power um and so to a certain kind of metal nerd to be like anti-hate black metal is like an oxymoron you know kind right. of um and so I think it's this and the fact that he also is, you know, um, like a nationalist in the bad way. So wait, he was upset because he, he was, read he an goes, article so, where you guys were no, they come back. It come, so this is all unfinished, but he runs this record store in, in Helsinki, and he was apparently on. First of all, it's it's funny because it's like I just came back from vacation. Like this, is what, which is also funny because it's like what American well, metal musician takes vacation, but it's Finland, so they have welfare or whatever, you know. So um, I love Finland, by the way. I'm not so trying good. to, but. Uh, so he wrote on the he wrote on the page. He's like, I just came back from vacation, and I guess an underling had had um, 
stock to crowl a CD, just probably, you know, a big list from a distro or something like that. So this guy had come from the vacation and he saw the holiday, I believe they call it. Yeah. Right from holiday or whatever. Yeah. And he saw the CD and he had just, you know, while presumably on the vacation, he had seen the anti-hate black metal headline or whatever. You guys are cucks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, so he, it, the video is just like, there's. It, there's just it's just like a side view on like a counter a record store counter and then a pair of hands takes Ig Her by Kralis and just breaks it in half that is fucking and, says, and the captain says like this mistake has been corrected and we will never like trust we will never support this garbage <laughs> that is so good um that is like so yeah I mean you just just when you I knew where you were going with metal and politics and so on I just, <laughs> well just <laughs> just tell you our our interaction with that which has been which is but you know but it's like in black metal these these strains have sort of been coexisting you know for a long time um and i think it every everywhere else i mean hell like i'm a big star trek fan and uh-huh. i started watching like the new star there's a new star trek a show new, that's new on one. yeah yeah, 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 yeah. star trek discovery not the bullshit movies yeah no no right. there's like a new series um and the fandom online is, comp- you know, like the lead is a black woman, blah blah blah. It's just like I can a, and imagine exactly. Like so it's just the same, that. yeah, the same conversation everywhere. You know, even in Star Trek or whatever, like that. It's just like so- the same fucking two sides. I like you don't. I you already know all of the insults being hurled in this Star any, Trek debate. Yeah. yeah, it's the same debate. You know, and it's happening in metal. It's happening in obviously the larger national politics and it's just the is- same fucking shit. So. I don't know that people like do they do they realize like you're the comic book dude from The Simpsons yeah, like right. that's what you are you're not like metal it's so funny because I remember uh, actually Toby and I and Mario we went to go see Sun they did uh, this was years ago like they Sun and Boris were playing that record Alter at the Brooklyn Masonic Temple and the power it was like kind of an infamous show because they kept blowing out the power. I do remember the this. The air conditioning wasn't working. It was an absolutely miserable experience. And I remember, I was like, Toby, this fucking sucks, dude. It's really hot. <laughs> and, and he was like, well, this is probably the best environment to hear this music right, in. Right. Like, this is actual suffering. Let's, <laughs> let's sort of, like, thrive in it. So when you, when you talk about these fucking losers, like, on the subreddits, you know, getting pissed at Corrales <laughs> for, like, not really being into hate. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, you are when you, in your sweatpants. When you like just a... when you just say it out loud, you <laughs> instantly drain any sort of power from that argument. You know, it's so fucking funny like, to me. It's funny. I mean, it's honestly just embarrassing to me that I countenance that argument for as long as I did. You know, like it didn't get under your skin, did it? Um, well, this thing with the breaking the CD happened. That was only two years ago. So, okay. so no, not at all. Right, but uh. That um, that was just like of a piece of a criticisms of Kralis from a very diehard black metal audience, and the thing was just that 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 probably was always a little bit political, but at least wasn't explicitly political yeah. early on. Um, but just more about how you know, like our chord progressions are too happy at times, and it sounds like an emo band, and like they, you know. But the, the, I mean, the funny thing was the, the thing for me was that in high school and stuff in college like i i considered myself the comic book guy so it you, did get under my skin because i did think of to an extent these like incredibly exacting dickish black metal fans were more or less like the people i agreed with about stuff yeah. most of the time this this weird incel gloss came later or, or yeah i mean that wasn't. music attracts um you know. you know so uh 
So I had to come to terms with that, just the, just like, you know, you know, this person's like, fucking Agalog sucks. And I'm like, yeah, Agalog sucks. And I'm like, oh, yeah, and Krellis sucks. And I'm like, oh, hey, wait. <laughs> you know, but whatever. It's you so funny. It. Like, I will say, I've had the good fortune of, you know, just being an admirer of music, spending, like, good amounts of time with, like, really great musicians. You know who are the sweet, you know, James Plotkin? Right. He's the sweetest yeah, cat he's around. A sweet, he's a sweet cat. He's such a sweet dude. He's silly and he's goofy. Like, these are, like... The dudes that are making this shit across the board like tend to be really sweet, funny fucking people. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's been so true for for that's been true for so long that I've forgotten that it's kind of surprising. That is surprising, given that you know the tone and tenor of the music. But yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. I mean, meanwhile, a lot of the people are more into sort of like general rock and roll actually like they're monsters they're yeah. actual monsters yeah, right. or like did you see this article in the times a couple years ago this fucking like uh, this white like 60 something year old like composer I think he teaches at columbia it was this article about he how he and his wife who's an african-american oh yeah mario studied with that guy actually they're in some like weird like yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. s&m relationship where the, like a uh, spectralist um i want to say his name is Bohr, like niels Bohr, but it's not it's like haas haas maybe I yeah. yeah and i'm like yeah you know i subjugate my black wife to fucking like <laughs> dominate i was like whoa what <laughs> like what <laughs> like that's actual darkness <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we did good, man. Yeah, of course. That sounds talk. good. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, I'm, Nick. I'm happy. Great. All right. That was Nick McMaster. Great guy. Great dude. Uh, really, really talented, amazing musician. Affable, fun person to talk to. Check him out. Check out the new Kralis EP, Wolf. Check out the new Gurion EP, Astamatus. It is all tremendous, intense music. I think the best thing to do is to go to kralis.bandcamp.com. That's maybe the best way to navigate the world of, of this music. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. We'll be back next week with a very, very, very special episode of the 5049 Podcast. So look forward to that. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.